look for the support because it's out there. A lot of people are looking to their family members. If you want to live, be an advocate for yourself. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we don't talk much about it. When we do talk about it, most of us are not very good at it. And that includes me. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. If you like this podcast and are learning from this podcast, please keep doing exactly what you're doing right now, which is listening. You can also help us out by letting folks know about it. You can rate it or review it. This allows more people to find it. More people in more places, places like Croatia and Ecuador and Chile and Switzerland. This podcast has been found in those countries. Folks there who need to hear these survivor stories are hearing them. So let's keep that going. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and would like to share your story with us, I'd love to talk. You can email us at hello at suicidenoted.com. Today I am talking with Kim. Kim lives in Illinois and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hi, Kim. Hey, how you doing? Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I'm really open. I, I believe it. My personal belief is that the shame around mental illness needs to stop. So I have no shame. I have no, you know, I have no sort of don't go areas. I think at all. Um, you know, people wouldn't hesitate to talk about cancer. I wouldn't hesitate to talk about this. It's something that's been in my family. I've lost several members of my family to suicide and almost myself. And um, I just think it's so important. It's such an yeah. important conversation. I'm really grateful to you that you're having it. Um, thank you. I mean, I, I, you know, it's interesting because a couple of things. You had mentioned cancer, though. Uh, this is before my time, but there was a time in which people whispered cancer. Yeah, I see. And yeah. so, you know, yeah. maybe it is just a matter of time and things like this. There's obviously many other things out there that try to uh, sort of decrease shame or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, I hope it gets there. You know, around the world... Every year, millions of people try to end their lives. Millions. And I've only been doing this for about a month. Mm-hmm. So we've had about 10 guests, 12 guests. It's not easy to find people who are willing and open to share their story around their attempt or attempts. Mm-hmm. And, and there are, now I might be able to reduce some of that millions to people. You know, I'm not going to interview people who don't speak English. But nonetheless, what do you think? I want to talk about you, but while we talk about that, why do you think it is so challenging for me to find people to say, sure, I'll talk about it? Well, I think, you know, people still, there's still so much stigma attached to it. I mean, even within the confines of my own life, I've just always been a very open-minded person. I grew up in a household that was covered in lies about it, you know? Um, So I'm the type, I like to rip the covers off. (laughs) But I think a lot of people, you know, for, I'll give you an excellent example. Um, My grandfather took his life and uh, we could never deal with it in our family. It wasn't, accident so you didn't talk about it we couldn't talk about it 
Did you know it was a suicide when that happened and you didn't talk about it or it was just an accident? Well, a little, when I was a little older, I figured it out because it's like, oh, wait a minute. He um, went in his garage and closed all the doors and left his car running and they found a bottle of alcohol in the car when they found him. And it's like, that's not an accident. You know, I had a lot about it when I was little. I just knew that I couldn't talk about it. Nobody did. You know, the Catholic religion, which I was brought up in, and I don't want to offend anybody's um, religious uh, leanings, but they are the ones who made it a mortal sin, thus attaching all the shame to mental illness. My grandmother and my mom were kind of Catholics that were sort of, I don't know, I guess bordering on insanity. So that's why we couldn't talk about it. And, you know, what ended up happening with that, it is my belief that if if people could grieve suicide the way other people grieve another type of death, maybe it wouldn't run in families so much as it does. Because I don't know about you with, um, you know, what your research and and things, but for me, um, my grandfather, father took his life my mother tried to take her life for five years she was in mental institutions in and out um i tried to take my life was almost successful at 30 my sister died of an overdose two of my cousin's children hung themselves it's pervasive in a family once it shows up and i don't know why that is but i've seen it in my own life you know sure Right. Like, so we could speculate that there might be a genetic component. I think it's more social though. I think, you know, I think depression is genetic. I think that's been proven with the suicide. I don't know. I think that there's something about it that once it happens in a family, it becomes an option of dealing with pain. Maybe so. One of my goals here, I, 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 always wary of you know we all have this sort of inherent judgment and that's the last thing i ever want to do yeah that's true yeah um no but here's the thing i'm wondering if a family has this thing it's almost becomes like a legacy right of this like ongoing pain and people attempting to end their lives and you would think that not talking about it isn't helping and presumably they don't want this to continue that they would find right. a way to talk about it. And yet they tend not to that, whatever that thing is in which, no, I don't want to talk about it. Even though I know that might be one reason why people continue to try to do this. That must be a very powerful thing. People are, are feeling to not discuss it. That was a very long winded comment or question there, but. You know, no, you said, so was my answer before, <laughs> but you it's know, like, wow. I, I think, well, I just, I can think of nothing else but the shame of, of what they're feeling of, of surrounded by it, because that's what, I don't know about you, but that's what I was taught. You know, you yeah. don't talk about that stuff. That's, mm. and that's why I am, this might sound a little messed up, but I'm excited to talk about it. I think it needs to be talked about. I think the more we talk about it, the more it takes, you know, it, it, it starts unveiling those layers of shame attached to it. You know, one of my biggest pet peeves, and I, and I even heard this recently, um, was, oh, it's so selfish. It's like, bullshit. That is, that, I don't know if there's anything connected to it that makes me angrier than that response. Astounding. They're, they're so... When I was there, I really believed the world would be better off. I really believed that. And I was in so much pain. You know, people that do that are in so much pain that they just can't, they can't do it anymore. It's a very, so when I hear that, it's almost like, I will stop being friends with somebody who says something that stupid. Or if we're good enough friends at that point, I will like 
you know, listen, I need to talk to you about this and what it means and hopefully be able to educate them in that way. But does that ever work out? Uh, no, (laughs) because it's usually at that point, you know, I don't know that I would ever, I just, there are certain types of people I just can't interact with. Like I can be polite and, but as soon as I sort of catch that vibe, I'm pretty much out of there. And you, you and, and, you know, again, I'm filtering my world through my own experiences, but I'm going to, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong, that we probably have similar experiences in that for me, that vibe is usually quite clear, quite early on in that exchange. Like, Oh, here it is. Boom. Yep. Yep. Here it is. And I, you know, I feel lucky because in AA, it's sort of like this wonderful union of misfits (laughs) or what the society deems as that. I I can't believe I I resisted it for so long because the people I've met in AA are some of the most beautiful people I've ever met. There's so much acceptance there and you just don't find that in life. So. Yeah. We, we as a culture, and it's probably not just our culture, do a really good job, it seems like, of almost demonizing not just people who have tried to end their lives, but addicts. Yep. Uh, just a, a long list of, uh, th- you're this word. You're, 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 right. You try to kill yourself or you're a heroin addict or you're an alcoholic. Yeah. I mean, and, it's, and it's just weird. Like, it is. You, have, you just know nothing about them. Well, and I think people, the harder they rail against it, I, I've often found that they suffer from it. So it's just sort of this, um, you know, if I deny it long enough, if I pretend everything is okay, nobody will know. I always come back to what the Catholic Church did to that, you know, because, you know, I believe that this recent Pope has sort of rescinded that mortal sin thing. But, you know, when you look at the generations and generations of people that, that grew up around that idea that it's um, a sin and a mortal sin, which is (laughs) not just any old sin, you know, that puts such a stigma on it right away, you know, and I wonder, that wouldn't have been in place would we have been allowed to deal with it differently because i don't know about you but the people we lost our best friend he hung himself too um about i think it's going on seven years i was i was brought up as a a really sort of casual uh, in real casual reformed judaism and I don't know much about that religion. I do know that suicide is an absolute no-no. Okay. I don't know if there's a similar sort of guilt thing or shame thing, but if you're feeling that way, good luck talking to other Jews, uh, uh, your spiritual advisor, whether it's a rabbi or a cantor. I don't know. I I don't know. It's not been my experience, but they're not super open to say, okay, you know, this is how you're feeling and when you start, like you said, with this is an absolute no-no, it doesn't leave much room to, 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 or space to feel and talk. Yeah. So your attempt, I'm, I want to learn more about that. And I guess you can, it's your story, so you can frame it however you want. I'm always curious, in as much as it's possible to put these things into words, sort of what your life was like before or sort of what led up to it or when you first started thinking about it and then the actual events. Okay. I grew up in a pretty scary household. There was a lot of trauma, a lot of abuse, both physical and sexual, which that I didn't really learn about um, until much later in my life. But it was just, it was a very scary place. And, um, so there was a lot of, you know, along with addiction, there was a dual 
diagnosis of depression and trauma and, you know, sort of all of that stuff sort of in one big messed up shit pot. Um, I had moved to Chicago to be with my husband. Um, I'm from Minneapolis and I first got sober as a teenager. I was doing very heavy drugs. I um, was shooting up. Does that mean heroin shooting up? No, I was, I was cocaine. I did cocaine. Thank God. I mean, if somebody would have offered me heroin, I probably would have. I've thought that a lot in my life. You know, it's, I just was the luck of the draw sort of, if you can, I mean, if that's luck, <laughs> lucky. I, I always, uh, I always hesitate to ever do anything that sounds like a sort of comparison, but no. I'm the exact same way I had a couple of years of heavy cocaine use mm-hmm. and then, and more so after I think I'm really lucky. No one offered me heroin. Yeah. I don't think I'd be here. I don't think I'd be here either. I really don't. And you know, cause it's addiction has been um, a big part of my life, you know? So growing up in my house was very scary. My mom was very abusive. Uh, my dad avoided, her by working and and it was just a very scary place uh she was an alcoholic and um that she was also dealing with her own demons she had been raped and i may have witnessed part of that and so she had a lot going on too and as i've gotten older i i've tried to forgive her because of what she was dealing with. But at any rate, um, I was called into my school counselor's office. This is kind of how it, it got started on the road to recovery. Um, I was a really talented athlete and I had, when I started doing drugs, I dropped out of everything. It was kind of sad that it was the athletics that drove them to get me into the office to see what was going on, you know, instead of the grades, you know what I'm saying? Um, but anyway, there was something about this man that I, I really, really trusted. He was very kind and not your typical school administrator type. And I had a lifetime of pain in my house and I just kind of let it all go in his office that day. And he called my dad in first and then uh, they set up an intervention with my mom. You know, initially it was, it was terrifying, you know, because she just absolutely flipped her lid and I didn't know what home life was going to be like after that. You're 15 years old at this time. Uh, no, then I was 14. Wow. You're a baby. Uh, Drugs had just kind of started. They hadn't progressed at this point to the point that they did. When I was 15 is when I went into treatment. 15 into 16. Anyway, um, yeah, I was a baby. I think about it now and my own daughter. It's like, oh, my God. So she eventually went to treatment. The problem with my mom is that unveiled all of the mental illness and all of the trauma. Cause once the alcohol goes away, you just sort of left like an open wound, you mm. know? Mm. And then right after she went in, they found out that I was using needles and they put me in treatment right away. And I got out, I stayed sober until I was about 19. But at any rate, it was after my mom got sober that the suicide attempts started. And then, you know, she was in um, and out of mental hospitals for, it was about five years. And they finally got down to the rape and dealt with the rape. And she saw a different type of psychiatrist that took a look at her hormones, which ended up being the magic pill, you know, and she was able to get better. Unfortunately, as soon as she got better, she died of cancer. So it was, yeah, it was kind of hard, you know, cause I felt like I had just gotten her back for like the first time in my life and she died of cancer when I was 21. 
When I was 19, I decided I could smoke weed again. That seemed pretty harmless. And it wasn't long after that that I started drinking again. Now that, um, those years between when it really started ramping up was right around the time I was about 23. And it just, it got really bad. It was a fifth a day. I was bartending. I was in the restaurant industry. So it was, yeah. it's to conceal it because that, that industry yeah. is full of us. <laughs> Because of my experience as a teenager, I knew I was an alcoholic. You know, there wasn't a lot of gray area there. You know, when you're mixing soy sauce and water together to make it look like you haven't drank a whole bottle of bourbon, that might be a problem. You know, like it just might be a sign. Yeah, right. And um, so it, it got really bad. And I, he was going to leave me. And your he should. Your husband was. Yeah. I mean, and he should have, you know, I would have left me and I just couldn't stop. I had tried for a year. Um, I kept going back out, kept going back out. I'd get about a month and then I'd go back out and it just, you know, that process of trying to get sober, it's so soul crushing. And there's all this leftover trauma from trial from childhood that you're, you know, that's swimming around in it. And, and so, um, when I was 30, I had had enough and I couldn't stop drinking. I knew I was going to lose my husband and I took two large bottles of Tylenol PM, a fifth of bourbon, six pack of beer, bottle of wine. And it's so funny that I remember it. It you really know? is interesting that you remember so vividly. I didn't have a lot of blackouts like other alcoholics I know, but I mean, I also didn't remember things in vivid detail, you know, like that. Maybe it's um, something with the brain in that it knows, okay, this is some seriously high stakes stuff and it sort of is etched in there forever somehow. Well, I wanted to die. This was no like, you know, you hear about people making an attempt to, just the fact that you want to die in my mind says it's serious, you know, but I was like, serious, it's a heart attack. I wanted to go. And this is, and I, I really, my entire life have been, I'm amazed that I survived that, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, you said something earlier about people saying it's selfish. I've heard other things similar, selfish and lazy. Mm -hmm. And I share that because, Similarly, that I also hear people say, well, you don't, you didn't really want to die. It was a cry for help, perhaps. Right, right, Of right. the people I've spoken to, some, and I asked that question, and you've, you've already answered it. I'll ask, did you, did you want to die, or was it something else? And that something else might be, I just wanted the pain to stop, or whatever it might be. And I get different answers. Some people like you say, no, no, I want it out. I, I wanted out. You wanted out. I mean, that's why I took as much Tylenol as I did, you know? I mean, that's a pretty profound amount. And uh, I wanted out. I just wanted out. When I woke up from that, it was the strangest thing. And I, it's funny because, you know, memories for me are weird. Uh, I don't have a lot of them when I was a kid. The ones I do have are really vivid and generally not positive yeah and, <laughs> you know but I remember waking up I was on my couch in our condo and I woke up and I just my first thought was why am I still alive why am I still here I'm supposed to be dead you know and I remember that happening to my mom too she got really upset when she woke up but she really shouldn't have. My dad happened to come. This was one of her su suicide attempts. He happened to come home because he forgot something. If he hadn't come home, she would have been dead. And yeah. when she woke up at the hospital, she was so angry, you know, to still be here. And I remember I, I didn't feel angry so much as I was like, how is that possible? 
that I am still alive after doing that. But then, you know, kind of a thought entered my mind, like, well, maybe you're just not supposed to die. Maybe God wants something different for you. I don't know. I mean, I was always, you know, really, but I did believe in a higher, you know, I believed in something larger than me, whether it was the universe, God, whatever. But it also occurred to me at that point, I am not going to drink again. Really? After struggling so hard for so long, it just left. And I didn't drink for 17 years. When you would used to go and, and drink a lot, right? There was, I, I assume it was part of it, right? Like you were saying was lifestyle or where you were working or sort of habits. But for me, somebody who's on again, off again, struggled with alcohol. I know that often I'm just pulled to have a few drinks. I can just feel better. Mm-hmm. I know it's, it's not very complicated. Right. You know, I feel shitty, whatever that looks like. Right. I have a couple glasses of wine or a couple beers. I feel better, right? This is one of the reasons people right. drink. It's pretty straightforward. Right. And right. so it's really interesting to me that you, were you after the suicide attempt and that sort of, I'll, I don't know if it's an epiphany, but that, oh, I don't want to drink or I don't need to drink. Did you still have those feelings and you just didn't do it or you actually didn't have that, those feelings anymore of I want to drink? It just left. The obsession left. I can't explain it. I mean, it was just, I used to think, well, maybe in trying to take your life, you found your life. And things were very good for me for many years after that. I will tell you the quick hospital story, though. I did have a hospital because later that day, I mean, my stomach was just on fire. It was, I was in a lot of pain. Um, I also had hepatitis C, but I didn't know it you know, from my drug use when I was younger, I didn't realize, I didn't get diagnosed with it until I was 48, Mm. um, which was, by the way, the year that I started drinking again. (laughs) So I went into the hospital because of the stomach pain, and I just have the funniest memory of this nurse. (laughs) She was this little Asian lady, and they were trying to empty my system out to do the barium so they could take a look at my organs. But there was this little Asian nurse that was like, good morning, Mrs. Shawad. Time for poo poo pee pee. You know, like it was, I don't know why that's just memorable ever in my head. You know, it was like, what? Yeah. It was just funny. But what was not funny is when they were able to, get a look at my organs, my liver. I was on the onset of cirrhosis at 30 years of age. Mm. And, you know, the doctor, I knew I wouldn't drink again. Well, not for a long time before I was in the hospital. But, you know, then when he said that, boy, he just was like, look, if you continue to drink, you're going to die. And I don't mean like, in a year or two years, like you are on the onset of cirrhosis. And once that happens, it goes fast. That was pretty scary, you know, but the, you know, the human body is an amazing vessel. And when I got out of there, um, I was also overweight at that point too, because I wasn't one of those lucky skinny alcoholics. I got bloated, but I started on that journey as well. And when you get your life back after being in that sort of awfulness it's amazing it's amazing it's kind of what i'm going through right now it's like you've gone from black and white to color to technicolor Mm. starts getting better you get all your talents back all your passions all the things that makes life worth living and then i got pregnant about five years sober and had my daughter I didn't want to have children. I was terrified of it. I was scared to do to her what was done to me. My husband knew this and he thought that I'd be a great mom. And so after 
many years, a couple years of talking about it, I finally decided, well, okay, we can, we can try. And it took a couple of years. There were some issues there. Um, and, but I did end up getting pregnant and it's funny. I have a lot of friends who couldn't wait, you know, just totally romanticized the idea. I, on the other hand, was terrified of it. Like, oh my God, I'm going to be a horrible mother. And what if I do this? And what if I do that? And, you know, what if, what if, what if, you know, I was just so afraid. And so <laughs> it's so weird because it, I loved it. Mm. I mean, it was the opposite of what, I mean, it wasn't easy. It was, you know, sleepless sure. nights of that but it was more than I had ever I didn't I had heard um someone say once they said for them motherhood closed up a massive hole in their heart without trying to you shouldn't have kids for that reason that's not like the reason you have a child but that was one of the benefits filled up a hole inside of me that I didn't think with love that I didn't think would ever be filled ever. You could argue or I could that a lot of the reason people drink and drug and other things is to fill that hole. Right. Right. Or did one of one of the, I'm not trying to simplify it, but no, 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 you're totally right. And you know, for me, the drinking, um, it squashed the anger I had about what happened to me when I was younger. Um, it was the only thing that could, it was the only thing that could tamp that down, but things were really good for a really long time until they weren't. And so right around it was a couple of years before I started drinking again, but a lot of shit went down. My husband lost his job. We were losing everything, you know, financially. We didn't, we managed to hold on to the house, but um, that was about it. We lost our entire down payment in the economic downturn. This was, you know, right around that time. Mm-hmm. Then my sister died of an overdose. Um, my best friend on the planet had cancer. She eventually passed away. And my daughter, the, the worst thing was um, my daughter started showing really um, signs of our illness. Mm. She started hurting herself in third grade. She, or no, fifth grade. She'd, take, she'd taken a scissors in the class to her arm because she was so frustrated. And so it was like my worst nightmare was coming true. You know, this is why I didn't want to have kids. The marriage was in the shitter. You know, he had a couple of things that I just really couldn't get past. And there was so much more. I was working as a, a store manager because we really needed health insurance and we're paying through the nose for it. So I got a job as a manager at anthropology and it was like working with your high school mean girls <sighs> on top of my life, just exploding in my face and dealing with this in my work life. And it just, it got to be too much, you know, it was so much in such a short period of time. This is the same time our best, one of our best friends hung himself. Um, there was just so much loss and so much, it just was overwhelming. In my kitchen one day, my sister-in-law was here and she was one of those toxic people and she was lecturing me in my kitchen about the screen time I allowed my daughter to have and just like, you know, kind of thing. Everybody likes being lectured in their own home. Uh, I mean, especially like that my life was just imploding and here she is. And I'd used a, a bottle of Grand Marnier for a recipe years before. And it just sat there on my counter for years. I didn't care. I didn't want it. If you would have even told me a day before I picked up again that I would pick up again, I would have said, you're out of your mind. There is no way. 
but here I was in my kitchen and my life is just kind of swirling and my sister-in-law's that are doing her thing. And I just, my eyes locked on that bottle of Grand Marnier and I picked it up. I poured myself a shot. That was a little over six years ago. I was out there for two years. Um, it got really bad again, you know, but I thought I'm not going to take my life because I have a child and I have to somehow rally here. And I knew, you know, the, the frustrating part was I knew how great silver life was. Thank God. Because yeah. if I hadn't, I don't know that I'd be here right now. Right. Um, I think that's actually a, a huge point, a really big, because if you don't have that as any kind of reference point, like, but oh, why, for sure. you have no reference point. Like right. if your life has been what shitty. Is right. What is yeah. that? You don't, if you don't know, you don't know, you know, you don't know, you don't know. And it like, th- I think that's what often gets lost with some people in terms of people around suicide attempt survivors, because they go into what's an understandable emergency mode of keeping you alive. But I think sometimes what gets lost is now what? Right. I'm glad for you, excuse me, for you that after your that attempt when you were 30, there was some, it seemed like a different sort of take on things and it made it manageable, if not better. Yeah. There was still a lot of trauma that I wasn't dealing with though. So that was always, you know, that's always under the, the surface. In your late 40s, I believe you, you oh. that shot of Grand Marnier. Yeah. That's what brought me back out. I mean, it's, I don't know how much you know about alcoholism, but once that, um, once it's uncorked, especially after long stretch of not drinking. Now I can't call that sobriety because I was smoking weed intermittently and towards the end I was taking pills, um, towards the end of that 17 year period of not drinking. So both those things, I think, opened up the pathway. Those things weren't present. I I can't say, but they were present and I did drink. And once the drinking started, I was out there for two years and I got really, really sick. And I started trying to get sober again when I was 50. I'm 54 now. It's taken me four plus years I'm now at about seven months of sobriety. Congratulations on that. Yeah. Um, I did try to take my life last winter. Um, again. And I didn't think I'd ever get there because of my daughter. But I just, I couldn't do it. Yeah, what, what, what changed? Um, just utter despair. Now you want to talk about shame. <laughs> Addiction has so much shame attached to it. I mean, that I don't know will ever change because people consider it um, like you want to be there. Even my own husband does. You know, he mm. thought it was fun. <laughs> right. Like, you just okay. want to party all you want to just yeah. party all the time. Yeah. Fun, fun, fun. Sitting in my bedroom at night alone, watching YouTube videos, crying, waking up, getting so sick I'd throw up blood. I mean it it just it's laughable to me when I think about it. It's like, oh yeah, that was a lot of fun. And so I think a lot of people don't understand that it is a brain disorder. Really, I think, um, brought me to that place was I had been trying to get sober for four years and I just kept failing. And it's like I said before, before I turned 30, before I first took my life when I was, or tried to when I was 30, it's like, it just keeps eroding your soul. I mean, because to me, I think people that are in denial about their addiction are fucking lucky. <laughs> that Maybe. might sound really screwed up. But, you know, I, there was never any question. Did One you try uh, the second time the same way? No, I tried to. I couldn't get up the courage to to slit my wrists. It was in my bathtub and I just wanted out. That and is how you tried? Is by cutting your wrists? time, yeah. Okay. But I-, I know that there are some people who are very against talking about 
the method and I don't need to get granular with it. Um, but I don't, I'm not a mental health, uh, professional. I am somebody who thinks that having very frank conversations and that is a part of it is generally healthy and people do need to hear it. I also don't think, and I'm curious what you think about this, uh, perhaps with the exception of some younger kids, people know what's out there in terms of how, if they, if that's something they feel compelled to do. I don't think you, for example, sharing that you took two bottles of this or went into a bathtub and took a razor is going to give anybody an idea. And uh, do you agree? Or that's a bit of a loaded question, but I'm curious. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you're talking about the age of information. If you want to do something, yeah, it's not too big of a mystery of how to figure it out. Right. I don't know. I mean, for me, it's just what happened. Some people might feel that way. I don't know. I don't, is that what the going thing is now? I don't so know don't if there's a going thing. There process. seems to be in certain, um, yeah, in certain circles, certain organizations, it's frowned upon or you don't talk about it. And uh, and I'm not trying to push back this particular platform. I really want to have just very open conversations. And sometimes that's part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not an hour conversation on every moment of that experience for you, but it's this right. is what you did. That's how you did it. Right. Um, I, I just want to better understand this thing of of suicide. Right. And that's part of it. You know, the, the another part that I think people often shy away from, and I'm going to ask you is I'm curious for either of those attempts. Did you leave a note? You know, I did um, the first time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he read it. I don't think he saw it, which is interesting. Right. <laughs> no, I did not the second time. Yeah. I thought at the end of December this year, there was a saying I heard that I, I love, and it said, you know, grace is what comes in when you run out of your own resources. And mm. Carolyn Mice or Miss, it's M-Y-S-S said that. And uh, that really struck me because at the end of December this past year, I was done. I was just going to drink myself to death. That was the plan. Since I wussed out on the cutting my wrist part, I thought, well, okay, you know, I've got a compromised liver. I'm just going to, that's it. But I'd reached out to a bunch of AA people that had really been there for me over the past course, past four years. And I just wanted to thank them and just say, I'm sorry but I can't do this anymore. I can't keep failing and, and I'm done. And I just wanted to say goodbye and thank you, you know? And it really wasn't a, it was sincere. I felt bad. They had invested a lot in me. I don't know what happened. The amount of love that I got back from them and support and please don't give up, you know, um, I'm sorry. So gets a little. Yeah, yeah. Take your time. Um, just decided to give it one more try. And uh, there's an inpatient program or an outpatient program here called Chapman. It's at uh, Evanston Hospital, which is Evanston's suburb right next to Chicago. And I had been told for a couple years prior, you should go to chat. And and I just kept thinking, what's the use? It's outpatient. What's that going to do? Blah, blah, blah. Of course, Mm -hmm. my way is always better than I went there. And I don't know what happened, Sean. When was that? That was in the beginning of January. And I sat in my car going in and I just thought, I have to do something different. Please help me do something different. Mm. You know, for me, what that was is I didn't know it at the time, but when you hear there's certain people that have told me, you know, Kim, you haven't surrendered. Surrendering in addiction is you have, it's, you're probably not going to get better if you just 
don't do that. You know, it's the first step stuff. I'd look at them and I just go, but I don't know. I know I'm an alcoholic. I know I'm going to die from this disease. I don't know how to surrender any fucking harder. What does that actually look like? What does that mean? For me, what it meant was um, letting go of the anger. Um, the anger I had at my husband, the anger I had at what happened to me as a child, you know, the people that hurt me. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know what happened, but it started draining. Mm. I didn't really even realize it until I look back on it now. And I got the gift again, which is, you know, the obsession has been relieved. And I didn't think I'd get it back. I really didn't. The surrender also sounds a lot like you have to, which I don't do what I'm about to say. <laughs> I've got my own demons, but trust. Like yeah. really trust people. And if you've not, I don't know if you've, trust has been betrayed a bunch of times. It makes sense why you wouldn't be so quick. Right. Trust. Like that's a tricky little beast there. The whole thing of, you know, what doesn't let me down? Bottle of bourbon doesn't let Never. me down. Isn't that amazing? Which is fucked up because of course it does. But it, but for me, what it did is it would just tamp down the anger and it would just work. And I think that is why there's so many of us in this program with the dual diagnosis. And it's, you know, it's interesting to me, some people in AA don't like it when you talk about the other part of your illness, which is depression and mm -hmm. bipolar. There's a lot of bipolar in AA. They don't want you to bring that up, which I, I find really interesting. It's like, well... <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, that's kind of why I drank. I mean, I guess I can't speak for someone else, but so it's kind of weird. So that still is it even in a place where mm -hmm. it shouldn't be, it's still in place. There's never doesn't sound like there's ever going to be like the perfect space to just be whatever you are. Like there's always going to be even there like some like why are you bringing that up? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Talk about a test of your, uh, just, you know, when people use these words like lazy and that comes up sometimes, I'm like, man, I feel blessed that I've never, and I don't know why this is. I've never thought of it that way. No. Somebody who's ended their life. I usually think of it as man, they struggled hard, probably for a while. Yeah. And it's like the opposite of lazy. Like just staying alive right. was probably really fucking hard. Right. And they did it for weeks or months or years. I don't know about you, but most people I know that have struggled with suicide are some pretty high energy folks. I'm sure there's the opposite of that, but like, I mean, I'm somebody, I don't really, I sit down in the morning when I have my coffee, you know, and I'll, I'm, cause I'm not working right now. But then it's like, okay, get on my bike, do some stuff around the house. I'm pretty much yeah. moving until the end of the day. I, I think it's similar to something you said earlier. I think it is thoroughly and completely misunderstood. Yeah. Not a little bit. Not a little bit. Thoroughly and completely. And what I'm always, I get frustrated because... I think most of the people that ultimately will hear this podcast, for example, I'm preaching to the choir. They already know right. to take their lives or may maybe I hope, you know, so can you or I or other people really get through to people who are just, I don't want to be the guy who's like, nope, but sometimes I feel like you're like, you ain't going to get it. I don't care if you and I were like, poet laureates of our respective areas and could put into words these impossible feelings. Not gonna get it. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. And what's so interesting to me is that just about every single person I know has been touched by it. Maybe not suicide, but they know someone who has. There's people in their family that struggle with depression or addiction or any of the compulsive disorder, you know, like any of the myriad yeah. things. And 
You know, that's that's what's so sad. You would think they would want to know more about it. Yes. If they didn't, you know, like if it were me, I don't think my husband wants to know more about it. Mm. Not interested. It's weird. It's weird. It's like if I have a type of illness, would you be interested then? Or would you avoid it that too? That that's a whole other thing about you know, people talk about I don't know why they always compare it to diabetes. If you had diabetes, you would take medicine. And I think, yeah, but there's a difference. Diabetes is just I mean, or a physical disease, if we can separate the two, which we like to do, particularly in Western culture, (laughs) you know, but it's not the same. I get get what they're saying is, of course, you want to treat it. Of course, you shouldn't judge it and all that. But it's different. Well, different. And I I don't, I don't, I I can't, I'm not eloquent in this regard, but. You're right, because growing up with it, and I don't, I don't know, like, if it would have been different if she wasn't abusive you know like if she would have just sad you know I know I put my daughter through some stuff I was not abusive at all I was just sad yeah and would that have changed like if that were me and that was my mom would would that have changed how frustrated by her that I was, you know? And what's interesting is if I'm really honest, I've judged people in my life. I judged my sister, but that's kind of interesting though. Right. Cause you'd think that we wouldn't, you, you would know, think. you'd been there, you know? So that's kind of an interesting thing to look at. It's like, well, mm-hmm. I don't feel that way anymore, but I did. Because I got my life together, she should be able to get her life together. There's that, yeah. And there's also, it doesn't sound like in your case, but, you know, the abused becomes the abuser in some form. Yeah. And you feel held down and you're like, boom. I, I, it doesn't sound like that, but that, that reminds me of that. Of like, yeah. you, would think, you would think the last person in the world to abuse would be someone who was abused, but that's not right. always how it goes. Not always the way it goes. No. Yeah. I mean, I'm grateful that I you know, wasn't that mom. Thank God. I, that's one thing I don't think I would have been able to live with. When you think about the way people responded after your two attempts, and that could be in the hospital or after your family, your friends, whomever, when you think about how they responded to you, what, what was the most harmful way people responded and presumably they didn't even know that it was harmful. They didn't recognize it. You know, it's not like I wanted people to say, oh my God, she attempted suicide. But it was like it wasn't looked at. Mm. My dad, years after the fact, would, when I would talk about it, because my dad and I have always had a pretty open, we kind of describe ourselves as war buddies. <laughs> and. um so I've always been really open with him, but it's like, he still won't know. Oh, you did that? Mm. Really? He doesn't believe it. You know? We don't talk about it, right? Things we don't talk well, about, we don't talk and, about. Well, if he were another person, then yeah, I would, that would just be normal. Mm. But my dad and I talk about everything. Yeah. It's not mm-hmm. like we don't have a really open and frank relationship. So. That's really weird. I think the fact that my husband never saw the suicide note is pretty weird. It's like people just don't want to, no, that didn't happen. That didn't happen, even though you were in the hospital. (laughs) And we know it absolutely did happen. Like, yeah, but they don't, yeah, but that happened. So that, that I think is harmful. It's like not, it's like you're not being validated at all. And I ask that not only because I'm curious, um, but there might be people hearing this who might be doing that and not realizing 
oh, this might not, this isn't helpful. Yeah. And I don't assume that if they just hear your story, then that's going to just, everything's going to be fine. But, but you hear it enough times, maybe it's, you recognize that you're doing that. Cause I think that's part of the, the hardest thing is, oh shit, I'm doing that. Right. That's like, that's a tough one. People, I think if somebody hears this, I would like them to know that they should ask questions. Be curious about it. Yeah. We'll need to talk about it. it so is if, somebody, if somebody's hearing this, that is in the position of like where your father or your husband or a friend was after yours, ask about it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What can you do as yeah. your Can I listen to your story? Yeah. I was going to ask you sort of on the flip side of what doesn't help, what helps, but I think you just answered it. Like I, 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 my filter is very un PC and I, I always think you use use the word curiosity, which I think is the perfect word. And I'm not sure that people, I don't really know if that can really be cultivated. So someone to be curious who wasn't curious. I mean, I, I think of it as just give a shit. Yeah. Like you've got to bridge the gap of I give a shit, but you don't feel like I do. Where's that? How do we bridge that gap? So you need to feel right. It's like, man. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, you know, it's interesting talking about it because I never really kind of thought about it as much until, you know, kind of right now that that is, it's like, no, I don't want to. Yep. Look at that part of it. You're sick. I know you have problems, but I don't want to see that. And not helpful. <laughs> if there's uh, people, so we there, there are a lot of people that attempt suicide. I don't have the numbers, but it's massive, high number. Especially right now. And, and right now is not making it any better. I don't. I don't know for sure, but I'd have to say it's worse. This might be a really difficult question, and I don't know if you can answer it, but let's say you can speak to people who are considering, like you did when you were 30 and um, at other points in your life, but right, there was a few that it really led to you trying. Right. And you don't know them. You don't know their story. You don't know their situation, but is there anything you could say to them that might help ease their pain a little bit? Well, for me coming out the other side of it when you are a survivor of this ah what are i don't know what the right words are it feels amazing when you come out the other side you're able to get the help that you need and find the support but also look for the support because it's out there A lot of people are looking to their family members. Not always the right move. No. Be it, If you want to live, be an advocate for yourself. Do things for yourself that support that. What, whatever that is. Support group, a therapist. Something that you love doing. I'm an artist. That's what I love doing. I do. I don't paint. My dad was a painter, but I do a lot of other stuff. Find something that you're passionate about, you know, because that only supports your mental health. And, for sure, for sure. You know, for me, talking about it helps and talking about it to people who understand it. Mm-hmm. So. You had said that your life had been black and white and then it got to the technicolor. And when you said that, I didn't say it at the time, but I'm looking at your bandana. And if you're on a podcast, you can't see it, but Kim's got a uh, multicolored, nice bandana, which sort yeah. of is a nice symbol, I think, for... Um, yeah. It sounds like from the earlier part of this year, you, you bottomed out like late last year, right? Early this year. Yeah. And then you went into a, a lockdown pandemic. It's weird times. Do you think that you will try again? Not if I do everything I need to do to keep myself mentally healthy. Mm -hmm. And for me, 
that means a lot of things. It means for me staying sober, number one, number one. Um, but also enriching those other parts of my life that I love. I'm passionate about cycling. There's, there's nothing for me that, I, I don't know, the cycle, I cycle in the woods. Up, I'm in, near a forest preserve. Mm -hmm. I do it probably two hours a day on most days, unless it's inclement weather. Wow. And I love it. And it's like my version of church. Whatever your beliefs are, um, just speaking for myself, that spiritual element has helped tremendously person. But, you know, I look for it in different ways and music and my bike in the woods in my art and, um, the relationships, it sounds kind of crazy, but that is a little lower down and it's only because you have to, in order to give the people in your life anything, you mm -hmm. have to pay. If you're not okay. It's a good point. Nothing else is okay. So right. I think taking care of yourself has got to be number one. And I hope that I'm never back mm -hmm. there. Me too. Good God, I'm never back there. And there are days where I still think about it. Yeah. But Absolutely. I'm able to get myself to a different place with it. Yeah. Glad you failed those two times or weren't successful might be the better way to say it. Me too. Not only for your life and your family and friends, but, you know, like you are on a podcast or, or other things you might do about it. Directly or indirectly, like, I think people hear this and they maybe have a little more hope or maybe they feel a little less alone or whatever it is. That's, for me, it's, that's big, man. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is it gets better. And mm -hmm. I think um, the times in my life that have come after those attempts, it's gotten better. Yeah. And life worth living again. And it wasn't before. Mm, yes, let us hope that this continues for you and whomever yeah. else. I really hope over the course of, you know, the not so uh, distant future that it's becomes more of a conversation. We are going to try, and it sounds a little maybe trite or cliche, but it's really not. Like, all right, will we ever be to the point where almost everyone is able to have this conversation in a way that's non-judgment? Probably not. Mm -hmm. But, but like, some people will get better at it, and some people will see. Oh, maybe I should should ask more questions to that person or maybe I should actually shut the fuck up and let them talk because that's what they need to do or whatever it may be. Right. Like, yeah, well, that light I, bulb will go off for some people. Yes. And that's what I was just going to say is that somebody will listen to it. That says, I feel that way. Yeah. And feel less, um, insane. Because I don't know about you, but when I was in the insanity of it, boy, you feel so alone. You do, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've had my own story, and um, yeah, I've had, I've had that feeling. So not to equate with yours, but I get what that is to feel alone. Right. alone. Yes. Thank you very much for taking Thank the time you. So, uh, sharing so candidly. Yeah, of course. I'm... I, it's an honor to do it. It really is because hopefully, you know, the more people do this builds, you know, and, uh, and I thank you. My for pleasure. Doing Absolutely. Like I said, it's a bit of a selfish endeavor, but Hey,
if it helps at all, I'm glad. One thing yeah. before I go, and that is, uh, what's something you're doing today that's fun? Uh, well, I'm about to get on my bike and awesome. uh, probably be out there for a couple hours. It's about 78 degrees here, so that's good. It's really beautiful, and so I'm going to do that. And and then I don't know. The world is my oyster today. Enjoy it. Enjoy that bike ride, man. I'm going to do some swimming, but but biking sounds pretty awesome. Oh, it's beautiful. It's Mm -hmm. just beautiful. It's the North Branch Trail here. It goes up to the Chicago Botanical Gardens, which aren't in Chicago. They're in the northern suburbs, but uh, it's just gorgeous. You can't city around you. Thank you so, so much again, uh, Kim. And I will, uh, hopefully I'll talk to you soon. Enjoy your day. Enjoy your bike ride. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Anytime. Take care. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening. Special thanks to Kim in Illinois. If you like the podcast... Rate it, review it, subscribe it. I know I say that a lot, but it really does help get these stories out there to more people. If you've got a story you'd like to share, you can email us at hello at suicidenoted.com. We drop new shows every Monday and Thursday morning. Until we connect again, stay strong, do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.